Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're focusing on anomalous worlds, exploring parapsychology and unexplained phenomena. My first guest is Professor Etzel Cardenia who was born and raised in Mexico. He has advanced degrees from Canada and the United States and was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University. He holds the endowed Thorsen Chair in Psychology at Lund University in Sweden, one of the top universities in Europe, where he directs the Center for Research on Consciousness and Anomalous Psychology, known as CERCAP. His areas of research include alterations of consciousness and unusual or anomalous experiences, disassociative processes, and acute post-traumatic reactions, the neuroscience of hypnosis and meditation, and the stream of consciousness during waking and altered states. Welcome, Etzel. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for, um, I'm glad to be here. Uh, well, I am deeply interested in anomalous experiences. I've had them most of my life. I'm always mm-hmm. open, maybe because I'm open and I'm looking out for them. But describe for the listeners, what exactly is an anomalous experience? Well, that is a concept that encompasses many different types of experiences, really that for a particular culture at a particular time seem to be either unusual or they do not seem to fit the explanation of that culture at that time. So what I'm talking about is a collection of phenomena such as having near-death experiences, which of course is not what happens to the majority of people, or having hallucinations that may not be related to having any kind of psychological disorder, or having a mystical experience in which a person may feel a connection with everything in the universe, and this is not a sort of recent connection, but an immediate given sense of unity with everything there is. 
and a few others. So um, it is a broad concept, but a broad concept to say that there is a lot more to human nature than we typically assume there is in our waking, ordinary state of consciousness. And when you talk about the cultural relationship, go a little bit deeper in that. When you speak about people who have had near-death experiences or perhaps people that have witnessed UFOs or you know seen things out in the world that uh, are, are unexplainable. The cultural significance interests me in what you share. Well, yes, because I think uh, we tend to be, we generally, as mainstream set of intellectuals or academics, tend to be very arrogant and assume that whatever perspective we have must be the best one and the most developed one. Whereas there are many other cultures that have different ways of being in the world that may have their own values and may differ quite a bit from ours. So, for example, right where I am in Sweden, it is not some to talk about having parapsychological experiences of seeing, well, I usually can guess when, let's say, somebody close to me is going to call me on the phone, even if she calls at completely different times. You know, that is not something that people ordinarily talk about here in Sweden. But if you go to another culture like Brazil, that would be nothing unusual. People, whether it is an accurate depiction or not, people will easily accept that and will talk about that. Something comes to mind, a story. I was in Iceland last year and I went to Elf mm -hmm. School, you know, and I don't know if you've heard of the Elf School in Iceland, but it's interesting no. um, because they are a culture that really believes. Yes, and there are, in fact, uh, the majority of cultures throughout history have had different ways of altering people's consciousness, and they have done it in a ritual setting, and they have done it because they thought this was an important way of finding out something truthful about reality. Rather, it is our recent technological Western culture that has become quite impoverished. Unless, you know, right now there is some movement from using psychedelics in which people are trying to to find other ways. But typically we have become very impoverished as compared with most cultures throughout history. When we talk about consciousness and being able to quantify it scientifically, there is no mathematical equation for consciousness, is there? Well, no, but there are, when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about one of the most complex concepts that really refers to different things. So when you're talking about consciousness, are you talking about, for example, the difference between somebody who is in a coma versus somebody who is very asleep versus somebody who is awake? That is a type of consciousness. Or are we talking about having just experiences of lights, colors, and sounds which is a different concept of consciousness, or are we talking about different states of consciousness? And I'm just giving you three different ways of looking at it, yeah. which are very different, extraordinarily complex. They haven't been explained. And no, sort of to come to your question, it's not so, matter, so much a matter of equation, but rather that we have no idea how we can go from what we know about how the nervous system functions, let's say neurochemical impulses, how we can go from that to the concept of consciousness, of having experiences of sound, of your voice, of colors. We have no idea how one can go from one to the other. 
And there are some people who think that we will never be able to figure it out because probably they are, they are, they seem to be very different domains and there is not obvious, not an obvious answer to it. Well, hang on a second. When you break down the levels of consciousness as you just did, let's say someone who is in a coma or a medically induced coma, it's not that they're not conscious to our consciousness, but is their consciousness some someplace else in some other domain? Well, there may be. In the last few years, one of the surprises of neurologists has been to find out that people who were in a deep coma for a number of years and who had been assumed to have no experiences whatsoever, that is nothing going on in their minds, that they have sometimes come out of the coma after years. And they have reported that, yes, they had some dream-like experiences, hallucinatory-like experiences, or maybe could even perceive a bit of what was going out in the ordinary, let's say, waking state. Mm, fascinating. And what about somebody, let's say, who has had a traumatic experience and disassociates and takes on the personality or character of another, of another person within okay. them, you know? Yes, let me go into that. And let me just say it's dissociate, not disassociate. Just dissociate. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. And that is one of the areas that I have done a lot of work for many years. And it is not that, let's say, something traumatic would happen to you and you would end up having different identities if the traumatic event happens to you as an adult. I think the understanding we have nowadays is that people who end up who go on to develop a dissociative identity disorder, develop it because early on they had problems with the attachment to their caretakers. They had probably a number of traumatic events. And this happened exactly at the time where most of us were developing sense of somehow cohesive or coherent identity. So what you need to think is that if you think at look at babies or infants, they have no sense of a coherent unitary sense. They do not think about what was I in the past, who will I be in the future. That's not how they function. They are not even coherent in what they feel at the moment. They may feel an itch. They are not quite sure if it's created by them. It happens to them, how they can move and control their bodies. They have no idea. And this goes on to be developed slowly and gradually. And what happens to people who develop the dissociative identity disorder is that they have a very strong disruption during those stages. And so they do not go on to, in a sense, extend themselves to integrate different aspects of themselves at the time and in the past and towards the future. So that's what occurs. So it's not just trauma happening to you as an adult and fracturing you. If it did not happen very early on, you're probably maybe going to have some psychological problems, but you will not end up having a lot of identities. Uh, and how to think about that is think about what Lisa has done to develop herself. You have integrated the Lisa that is very charming with a Lisa that can be aggressive, with a Lisa that is professional, and all of those and many other aspects of you end up going under the umbrella of Lisa. And you can remember all of those and you say, well, those are parts of me. The person who has DID is not able to do that, so keeps all of those aspects separate and extreme. I have worked with a couple of clients in my lifetime, uh, one younger woman in her early 20s and another in her 50s, and both had had significant childhood trauma, and 
the others, these other personalities that lived within them were quite fascinating. But in my recollection, there was no conscious awareness of the others when the others were present. Yes, that can happen. And but you can you have also to think that there are many things that we are not consciously aware of, even if we do not have DID. For instance, what are the processes that make me have a particular dream at night? I may have seen something that I thought was completely forgettable. I cannot remember anything about it. And boom, at night, I dream about that. So there was an aspect of me that I was not consciously aware of that was very much present processing or being aware of that stimuli that I thought, oh, that's negligible. It doesn't matter. So we have all kinds of things that we are not aware of. Rather, we are aware of very few things. Yeah, I think that's what makes this so fascinating. In the case of people who experience unusual or anomalous events, does it mean that they're mentally ill or does it mean that they have access or an openness to experience something that is different? Well, yes and no. <laughs> sort of. Uh, or I'm going to say yes, yes, or no, no. Because one cannot generalize that much. There are people who have anomalous experiences, and I have done research with, for example, psychic practitioners. They call themselves psychic or sensitive practitioners in Copenhagen. And the majority of them were perfectly fine. They We looked at psychological measures. They were completely fine, as as fine as a typical Copenhagen citizen. But there are, of course, also some people who have anomalous or unusual experiences that do have problems that feel very anxious, that cannot control them. So it is not either or. But I would say what is important is to know that the majority of people who have, for example, experiences of feeling energy or communicating with others telepathically, the majority are psychologically fine. as fine and they are as rational as the people who do not have any of those experiences. It is a sensitivity, if you will, to be more experientially attuned to sense certain things that other people cannot sense. We could go on and on for hours because this is so interesting. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we will carry on the conversation with Professor Etzel Cardenia. And I want to also talk about your book, Parapsychology, a handbook for the 21st century and varieties of anomalous experience, examining the scientific evidence. To learn more, I will direct our listeners to the website at Lund University, which is www.psy.lu. .se. Once again, it's a bit different, so I'll repeat it, www.psy.lu.se. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Hey, listen up, y'all. Before we head to the break, I want to talk with you about Tata Tamers. It's no secret bra shopping is a drag. There's always lots of trial and error, and even then, the perfect fit can be elusive. What if you could skip the trip to the mall and find the perfect bra in minutes? I'm a loyal Third Love customer who shops from the privacy and comfort of my own home. It's true, I wear Third Love bras because they are hands down the most comfortable bra on the planet. All Third Love bras are tagless, lightweight, ultra soft, smoothing, and have straps that don't slip. This means happy breasts. It all starts with Third Love's online Fit Finder quiz that helps identify your breast size and shape and then recommends the perfect bra style that fits right for your body. Did you know that 50% of all women fall between standard cup sizes? 
They're so obsessed with finding the perfect fit that Third Love invented half cup sizing. What I really love about Third Love is the comfort, fit guarantee, and rock star customer service. If something's not right, you can send it back. No hassle returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash happiness to find your perfect fitting bra and to get 15% off your first purchase. Once again, that's thirdlove.com slash happiness for 15% off today. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on. Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are exploring anomalous worlds, parapsychology, the unseen and unexplained phenomena. My guest is Etzel Cardenia. He is a professor at Lund University in Sweden. He's also the author of Parapsychology, a handbook for the 21st century and varieties of anomalous experience, examining the scientific evidence. Prior to the break, we were talking about anomalous experience, but I want to move into parapsychology or psi phenomena. So Etzel, talk a little bit about the definition of this and the exploration and research that is being done in this area. Sure. Parapsychology is, again, an umbrella kind of concept that talks about what looks like the possibility of being affected by things that happen in places that are not close to us or that are in another time in the future or in the past, and that the information that is coming to us is not mediated by the senses or by reason. So what I mean by that is if you suddenly have, for example, a hunch that your friend of infancy, whom you had not thought about for years, and you suddenly think, why wonder what happened to, to Mike? And at that time, it happens that Mike just sent you an email after years of no, of a lack of contact. I think it is reasonable to assume that somehow you were affected by his intention to contact you even before you knew that he had done so. Or if you have a dream about an event that happens in the future, and the event 
is not something that you could have predicted easily and does happen pretty much the way that you were sensing it, dreaming it, having an image of. Those kinds of events certainly give the notion that consciousness seems to be less limited than we think it is. Is this not our innate intuitive abilities that are present or come alive or become activated? I think we all have this inherently to a lesser or a greater degree. I think so. At the same time, I would say that at least from what research would show that the vast majority of us cannot control it in any way. And that when it tends to happen to us, it tends to happen where there is something very dramatic and emotional occurring. So, for instance, if someone close to you dies suddenly and you have a sense, what occurred to X? Well, maybe that was a very good hunch, but you cannot control. You cannot say, okay, now I will contact uh, my nephew and tell him to get me something from the store. That's not how it works. So for the vast majority of us, it is much more something like that happens. And typically when there is a very dramatic event, there are only very, very few people who seem to have a much closer sense that they can control, that they can purposefully see something at a distance that they cannot surmise from any other way. But it is, in a sense, something like there are a few Picassos who are able to paint extraordinarily, and the vast majority of us really can just draw stick figures, if at all. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. There was a book that came out, I believe it was a year or two ago. I think it was called Phenomenon or Phenomena. And it was a, a, mm -hmm. a woman had uh, taken all the documents she could find through the Freedom of Information Act in yes. America and basically studied and exposed all of the research that the United States government and the Chinese government and the German government had done in terms of um, using psychic warfare the ability or wondering if it if it could work. Yes, and I know some of the people who were involved in that research, Ed May or Joseph McMonagall. Uh, Joe McMonagall is very well known for being an extraordinarily gifted remote viewer. And there are a number of cases in which he was able to surmise and even draw to an extraordinary detail what he had been asked to see without any other information that, for example, a couple of coordinates that wow. he could not guess. Now, he is not able to be accurate 100% of the times, not 80% of the times, but I know he has mentioned that he's right about 50% of the times, which still is extraordinary. Indeed. I think most of us would be way, way down in the list. And since you were interested in the culture, let me just mention that one of the things that we do not know is really to what extent we are so poor at it because we live in a culture where none of those possibilities are trained or even believed in. Yes, that makes so, sense. Yes. If you go to a more uh, forest kind hunting gathering culture where to have a good sense of where food may be or where a predator might be and Everybody around you think that that is a possibility. That's a human possibility. But probably those people may be more likely to show a greater ability than we do here in our technological side where we use an iPhone instead of trying to develop our own mental abilities. 
So when we talk about the sixth sense and the uh, development of this, we're really talking about, I think I'm hearing you say that it ties back to a very primitive experience of seeking safety and protection, that it comes from that vigilance to maintain one's safety. Probably it does. I just heard in a conference, international conference, a very interesting study which found that usually people, for example, did not get very well when somebody hidden to them was watching them in a street that was safe. But when they were in an area that was not very safe, then they were much better at guessing that better than chance when somebody that was hidden was watching them. So when there was danger, somehow it seemed that they were better able to capture that. And is that because when we sense danger, we come out of the thinking mind or the prefrontal cortex and we're operating from a different part of the brain? Well, I think we operate with the whole brain most of the times. But what I would say is we stop being so scattered and we stop thinking about what we did not do in the morning or what we're going to buy uh, for dinner. And uh, we may start to scan much more what is happening around us, including things that we may not be able to see or hear. So what we know about psi phenomena actually does not seem to show that it is like a sense. It seems much more that it is a sense of interconnectedness where something that is happening in a different place or at a different time can affect us, but generally it is a very subtle effect. And it is only when you are in danger, when it affects somebody that is very close to you and it has to do with accidents or death, that you are able to sense it. Fascinating. And as a professor at a university in Sweden, where you share that the culture may not be as open to this, when you teach your students, how do they receive the information? Well, I would say that most of my students, because I teach a course and they knowingly are taking it, they have a sense of who I am because I'm very well known here in Sweden and what I do. I think that at least a high percentage of them are interested and are open. When I teach in another course, rarely do I get, but it has happened, somebody who is not, I would say, not a skeptic, but somebody who's a critic even without knowing anything about the literature. Mm. I would say, though, that that more people are perhaps more open to these events than they might have been a few years ago. Certainly, there seems to be a bit of a trend going towards openness, as far as I can see, among students. Now, is does the openness mean that you will experience more of this? Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. It doesn't mean that you will become a Joe McMonagall and that you will be very gifted. But there is very interesting show, very interesting research across dozens of laboratories throughout the world that shows that if you think that you are likely to do well in an experiment of parapsychology because you believe that there is such a thing as psi phenomena, you are more likely to do slightly better than chance, significantly so. If you think the opposite, if you think that there is nothing to parapsychology, that all of this is nonsense, you're slightly likely to do worse than chance. And these are very significant results. And it shows to an extent that if you think you can do it, you're more likely to do it. If you think you cannot, then you will not. Which speaks to perception really creating reality. With very strong caveats. I'll tell you, I hate that 
kind of phrase. I'm sorry, Lisa. No, don't because, be sorry. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I think ethically, when I think about when somebody says about the secret or whatever and says you create your reality, well, no, the, the people who were in Hiroshima or who were in the extermination camps or in the atrocities that happen every day, the infants, the babies, they did not create that. Correct. That happened I agree, to of them. course. And that is happening all the time. I think the, the more that we can say is that we may be able to affect slightly, but there, if there are very strong forces in movement, no matter how psychic you may end up being, you will still end up being canon father. But I think we're talking about two things here. The ability to have psychic ability, which mm -hmm. we may or may not have in varying degrees as an individual, to mm -hmm. our ability to control the only thing that I have in all of my years learned to control, which is my, my attitude or my perception. Sure. That's what I'm really speaking of. And that people go through, you know, horrendous experiences, terrible atrocities. And, you know, I think back to, you know, B Victor Frankl in his book, Man's mm -hmm. Search for Meaning, that the, at the end of the day, he being in the extermination camps and witnessing what was going on and the will of those that survived versus those that didn't. I mean, it's random. Some survived, some didn't. But mm -hmm. the ones who were able to hold a perception of possibility survived. Well, let's say that of those who held that as a possibility, probably the vast majority were exterminated and there were a few who survived. Because I'm sure that many people who thought, oh, this will get solved in some way or another ended up being exterminated. I agree. I do agree with that. Yeah, and I agree with you. You can still try to do something with your attitudes and your beliefs and how you try to interpret an event. And that may be of great importance, although even with limits, because if suddenly there is a catastrophe that just wipes out all of your near and dear, you know, you can still try to make sense out of it like Viktor Frankl tried to do. But it is going to be very difficult because there are facts those people may have taken out of you in a completely unfair manner, in a completely cruel way. But in any case, enough of that. <laughs> well, I think it's probably a whole other discussion and show to talk mm -hmm. about how to recover from something like this. You know, mm -hmm. but we're, this is not a show about trauma. It's, it is a show yes. about <laughs> parapsychology and psi phenomena. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a corollary between, I think, when... You said when difficult things happen or bad things happen, mm -hmm. that these events seem to be more prevalent. Yes. And I think what may happen is if something very bad happens to you when you're a child, you will end up, in a sense, to use a, a metaphor, you will prick up your antenna because something may happen, something bad may happen to you anytime. Oh. So you become much more sensitive because you need to. Whereas if you live a more comfortable, more secure life, you do not need to be in alert all of the time. Let me ask you a quick question. We're almost out of time. It yes. ties into our next guest. And in terms of people who find themselves, I'm going to use the word possession, but it's not really what, what I'm meaning, but where people feel as though they are spiritually challenged. Maybe it can be that they are speaking in tongues, sometimes it happens, or people lose their mind for a short period of time. How does one explain this unexplainable experience? Okay, and let me start with the notion that the majority of people who speak in tongues 
or who experience being taken over by a spirit or some kind of entity, the majority of them are fine. The research shows, and we have done research with an anthropologist in the University of Vienna and with anthropologists and psychiatrists in Brazil, that the majority of those people who are in a religion where those things happen are, are psychologically healthy. So it's rather the same as for other anomalous experiences that only the minority of people who cannot control what is happening, who become very disorganized, who get, in a sense, uh, who cannot swim in that event, they have problems. Other people do not. They have an experience that is unusual. You can propose many theories, psychological, anthropological, and there is so often, there is something that seems to go even beyond that. But why does that happen? Well, Think about, for example, our notion of who is Lisa. Lisa, you would say, well, I know what my identity is. It's very clear. But you go tonight and dream. And who is creating that dream? Who are those characters? Are you in control of any of that? You are not. Yes. So I would come back to the notion that we know just so very little about our psychology, about the world that probably it is not surprising that there are so many surprising and seemingly unexplained matters. Beautifully said. To learn more about the work of Professor Etzel Cardenia, please visit www.psylucay, and I'm going to spell it out. I had to just, it flowed lyrically. It's www.psy.lu.se. Once again, that's psy.lu.se. The book we also have been referring to, authored by Professor Etzel Cardenia, is Parapsychology, a Handbook for the 21st Century and Varieties of Anomalous Experience, Examining the Scientific Evidence. Thank you so much, Etzel. It's been a pleasure. Come back. Thank you, Lisa. Same. All right. Do have a good time. Oh, a good yeah, day. definitely. You too. Thank you. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy, or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about anomalous worlds, exploring parapsychology and unexplained phenomenon. My next guest is Rachel Stavis. I am often fascinated by forces out in the universe that are unseen. And some of you may say, oh boy, she's going down the woo-woo corridor. And maybe I am and maybe I'm not. 
I'm very interested in energy work. I'm very interested, especially because I work with clients who are afflicted with a variety of mental challenges, you know, addiction, trauma of various kinds. And as I sit with them, I wonder, you know, what is going on here? Yes, there is trauma in their past, but sometimes maybe there's more than trauma. And my next guest, I think, is a kindred spirit in that she is a modern day exorcist. And let me qualify what I mean by that. R.H. Stavis, also known as Rachel Stavis, is a secular exorcist based in Los Angeles, working under the radar and never advertising her services. Rachel has been sought out by thousands from Hollywood moguls and rock icons to stay-at-home moms. She never charges for her services. Rachel does her work because she feels called to do it as her duty to use her gifts for the greater good. But for many years, the horror screenwriter and novelist by day denied these gifts or tried to. As a little girl, she could see monsters floating around her bedroom or attached to other children. Told by her neglectful mom that the monsters weren't real, Rachel had learned to stay silent until something happened. And maybe that was her awakening and her opening. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about, you know, I mentioned sort of sisters or kindred spirits, and that is that you do work in the dark side and you work in the dark side through energy and light. Yes. So I, I tend to visit the places that most people don't want to go, <laughs> yep. to say the least, right? You know, things that people don't even want to believe exist. That's my every day. Every single yes. day I am working in those places. And funny, you know, I have a, here in Los Angeles, I have a group of mediums and psychics that know about me, you know, and have sent people to me uh, based on the fact that, you know, that they have something, let's say this person that, that this medium can't see or whatever. And even they say, oh my gosh, I would never do <laughs> what you do. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it's all about energy and frequency. And that's kind of, I think, what, what makes the way that it's described the way I do it uh, different than what people have traditionally thought about exorcism. So, you know, every day we kind of walk around the planet and we emit energy. You know, everything emits an energy. And we have thoughts, we have words, we have actions that all of that kind of adds up to is what I call your baseline frequency. And that's kind of how you walk around in the world. You know, that's the things you tell yourself, the things you tell others, the actions. And when we have a trauma or traumatic event, that baseline frequency takes a hit. And when that mm -hmm. happens, that's kind of how entity attaches. You know, entity is uh, from a negative uh, energy space, and it's looking to feed, and it needs to find that negative energy that it too can attach to and feed from. And that's kind of how people get, for lack of a better term, you know, possessed or attachments. And when you say possessed or attachments, you know, some of us may be thinking of The Exorcist, which was an ancient film. Linda Blair was the star and her head yeah. would spin around and she was puking green. That's not really right. what you're talking about. That's an exaggeration. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, that's going to be a bit of an exaggeration. Now, that's not to say, you know, not to scare people further, <laughs> right? But that's not to say that there aren't what I call movie-style entities, but it's exceedingly rare, and it's a very specific type of entity that works in that way. And what that entity is looking for is actually world changers, you know, things that tip the scale 
to balance more of, of negative. That's not common. That's not what people carry. And in fact, you know, the entities that people are walking around with, most people don't even know they have them. That's how subtle, you know, having an entity may be. Again, not to be even scarier, again. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people are walking around with entity and don't even realize they have it. And when you say entity, what pops into my mind is like the emotional vampire or, you know, sort of somebody who's something that sucks the energy or life force out of another. Is that an accurate portrayal? I would say so, because I hesitate to use the word demon. And the, the reason I hesitate to do that is because there are actually many different kinds of entities some much more malevolent than others. Some are not really malevolent at all. So because of that, you know, I kind of call them all entities because you have like uh, some small, what, the, again, what most people are carrying around with them are what I call Clives, you know, because they look like Clive Barker drawings to me. And I, I named them all <laughs> because there was no handbook for me, <laughs> right? So I had to kind of create all of that for myself when I see people walking in with the same kind of thing all the time. But those entities are like leeches. You know, leeches will feed from you and until there's nothing left, if allowed to, but it's not malevolent per se. You know, that's kind of how that particular entity works. And when we talk about the Clives and these sort of emotional vampires or bloodsuckers and handbook, I want to go go to the book part first before we go to the other part. <laughs> you have a new book out called Sister of Darkness, The Chronicles of a Modern Exorcist. And I am in the middle of the book right now and I am thoroughly Thank enjoying you. it. I mean, I find your work fascinating, especially because in the work I do in psychology, that somebody can present with, you know, whatever the condition is in the DSM and whatever the diagnosis is, but that you can see, you can feel there's more at work there than just depression or straight up addiction, because there's no such thing as straight up addiction. Right, exactly. Addiction is a symptom. Yes, yes, yes. So I want to just touch upon your story a little bit, because your story is one that I think many of us as children, we have seen or heard things, been aware of a presence, and our parents, you know, for lack of awareness and education on their part, might have poo-pooed what we experienced. <laughs> yes, I, and I think, you know, I want to think now, you know, as we're moving into a more conscious place on the planet, you know, that, that parents now are like, oh, no, we're going to nurture that, <laughs> right? But back in the day, when we were kids, you know, we didn't really have parents who were very conscious most of the time. So, yeah, they would. You know, when you would start talking about things that were really out there in terms of, like, seeing monsters, if you will, you know, having a parent go, oh, tell me more about that really wasn't something that right. happened, you know? So, of course, with me, you know, I had a, a pretty abusive childhood anyway, but that was one of the things that I learned very quickly is that you don't discuss that because that makes you crazy. And yeah. so you, and and you'll see like, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure a lot of people can identify with this in a different way, but like, when you were a kid, or if you have kids, you can see how connected to spirit children are. You know, children will often talk to deceased people. Sometimes, you know, like they'll talk about grandpa, and you know grandpa died five years before they were born. They'll talk about their past lives. Like, they talk about a lot of things. And that, unfortunately, slowly gets 
I guess for lack of a better way to put it, it gets beaten out of you, right? You you become more cynical as you get older, you're more logical, and all of those things that are connected to spirit, that beautiful thing of being aligned and connected to spirit, isn't really that easy or accessible anymore, and that's a shame. And so that's, you know, that is something that happened to me as well. But for me, you know, positive or negative, right, gift or curse, it never really went away. So... <laughs> For me, I've always had that connection, but as an adult, something that was exciting for me was reconnecting with it. As much as I tried not to, and I tried to be normal, and I tried to just lead an existence where that wasn't part of my life journey, it's not possible. And so when I decided, okay, I'm going to embrace this, not only did I embrace working, obviously, in, in the dark places to help people and bring them back to light, but getting the opportunity to connect more again with spirit and all of the light beings and all of the high beings and, and seeing those messages from spirit and, and helping people connect to that too, that's a very big part of what I do. And it's been a really beautiful part of what I do too. I want to just add that your day job had been screenwriter for film, television, and video games, that you created the backstory for Lara Croft Tomb Raider. You've published four horror novels. So sort of that day job took a very different trajectory or was on a very different (laughs) trajectory as as you developed and honed your skills in this realm. Um, We don't have much time left, so maybe you'll come come back and hang out again because I have so many questions I want to ask you. The first thing I want to bring up before we go, though, is that you don't normally perform your exorcisms at night. So much like the vision that we have, this sort of fantasy of what goes on at night to get rid of the the, the so-called demons, your work is performed (laughs) in the light. Yes, and you know, I'd love to give you this fantastic reason for that, but the real reason for that is because in order to do this work for myself, I have to be in my highest vibrational place. You know, I have to be in a a good place energetically to be able to do it. And obviously, the later it gets, the more tired you get. And so, for me, I prefer to do it during the day, though unfortunately it doesn't always work out that way, but I prefer to do it during the day because I'm at my best energetically. I'm not tired, I'm rested, I'm ready to go, and it just works out better for myself and my clients so that I don't drain myself to the points of uselessness, and you know, it's really successful for them as well. Come back, will you? Come back again and hang out with me. (laughs) Cool. That would be great. (laughs) The book we're talking about today is Sister of Darkness, The Chronicles of a Modern Exorcist, um, written by R.H. Stavis. That's Rachel Stavis with Sarah Durand. You can connect with Rachel at R.H. Stavis on Instagram. It's also R.H. Stavis. And really, this is such a great read. I'm really enjoying it. Here is your chance to read about the world's only non denominational exorcist in the book. All right. Talk soon. Take care. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, 
place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest today, Professor Etzel Cardenia and Rachel Stavis, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.